I'm Olivia Godro, and this is Land Talk, conversations about the intersectionality of land, identity, and environmental justice. This is a podcast that seeks to explore ways of decolonizing social work to decenter whiteness and examine how social workers can ethically engage with indigenous communities in the fight for justice while saving the planet in the process. In this episode, we look to the sovereignty movement in Hawaii, which has grown in strength over the last 50 years or so. The native people of Hawaii, also known as Kanaka Maoli, have experienced hundreds of years of displacement due to colonization and Western occupation, and in many ways, these events parallel the experiences of other indigenous communities in North America. The land, language, culture, and the way of life was stolen, as Kanaka Maoli were forced to assimilate and integrate into quote-unquote Western civilization. For decades, grassroots movements in Hawaii have been growing in strength, calling for the return of Hawaiian sovereignty. In the summer of 2019, Kanaka Maoli activists, who refer to themselves not as protesters, but as protectors, met at the summit of Mauna Kea to stop the construction of the 30-meter telescope. Mauna Kea is a dormant volcano on the island of Hawaii, and when measured from its base below sea level, it is the tallest mountain in the world. It also happens to be an ideal location for astronomy, thanks to its cold, dry air and lack of light pollution. But to Kanaka Maoli, it is revered as a sacred place for worship and a home to the gods. The 30-meter telescope, or TMT, is far from the first telescope to be built on Mauna Kea, but it would be the largest, towering over 200 feet tall and 30 meters in diameter. There are already 13 telescopes that exist on Mauna Kea, and each one has been proposed to be the last one. Kanaka Maoli have expressed great concern about the impact these have had on the cultural, natural, and historic resources on Mauna Kea. Despite several years of legal battles to prevent the TMT from being built, in 2019, the project was again given the green light. What began as a movement to prevent further desecration in a sacred place took on a life of its own. At the summit of Mauna Kea, in place of a telescope, Kanaka Maoli not only established a system of communal living, including medical care, food, supplies, and shelter, they also established Pu'uhuluhulu University, a collective place to share knowledge and traditional cultural values. To quote Hawaiian activist Mehana Kihoi, they thought they were building a telescope, but instead they awoke a nation. To this day, there has not been a final resolution regarding the TMT. I grew up in Hawaii, but I am not Hawaiian. I'm a white woman in pursuit of a master's degree in social work, and I often find myself questioning my place, not only in this fight for Hawaiian sovereignty, but in engaging in indigenous movements at a time when BIPOC leaders and social work are needed. To help me explore some of these questions, I invited Dr. Jamaica Heoli Mele Ikalani Osorio to have a conversation about some of these things. She's a native Hawaiian, a professor of the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and she's also an activist and a poet and was a prominent presence at the summit of Mauna Kea. If you were to Google her name, you're likely to find raw emotional images of her tied to a cattle guard at the summit of Mauna Kea, using her body to protect the land she holds sacred. Jamaica also happens to be someone I have known my whole life, and I am honored to have the opportunity to have this conversation with her. One of the first things I'm hoping we can chat about is um, this connection to land, um, because obviously in the you know Western colonial worldview, it's it's a it's commodified. It's that's you know, um, and so I'm wondering if you can speak about um, how that's different for um, indigenous communities and specifically, obviously, to Kanaka Maoli. Awesome. So like 101, why why does land matter to Native people? Yeah. 
perfect. Okay. So, um, I mean, there's a general sense across all the literature and scholarship by native folks that land is at the center of everything. Um, but I'll speak from my own experience as a Hawaiian more than anything else, because that's the research I know best. Everything about who we are, how we identify, how we move through the world, how we make relationships is through our relationship with land. Um, a good example of this is even in the way that we name land. So Hawaii, in, in the Hawaiian language, Olalo Hawaii, there are, there are a few words to describe like a land mass. And there's a book by a brilliant 19th century Hawaiian scholar named David Malo, and he talks about the difference between moku, uh, M-O-K-U, and aina. Um, and most people today, when we talk about land, we, we use the word aina. But moku literally means, and he says this, moku means to be severed by the sea. So any land mass that is surrounded by water. So Hawaii Island is a moku, Oahu is a moku, um, North America is a moku. But aina is not aina until Kanaka people have populated it and have engaged in, in a relationship with it. So at the very fundamental level, the identity of land is changed by Hawaiians being there, right? It becomes aina. And that's important because what aina literally means is that which feeds. So land isn't even land until it's feeding. Um, and this is at the center of how I think Hawaiians view their universe, is that land feeds, we feed land, and then together we have this familial relationship. Um, Another important part of this relationship is, is the way that we recognize that our gods both gave birth to these islands and gave birth to us. And that the first Hawaiian man was both, so there's this, there's this old Hawaiian story about this god, Papa, who's the god, she's often talked about as female, but she's the god of the earth. And then there's Wakea, the god of the atmosphere. And they come together and they give birth to all the islands. And then after they give birth to the islands, Wakea, sleeps with his daughter, Ho'ohokukulani, which means the woman who puts stars in the sky. And their first child is stillborn, so they plant him in the earth. His name is Halo Anakalo Kapalili. And from his, um, his corpse, essentially, grows the first Kalo plant. And that becomes like the staple of the Hawaiian people. And then their second child, he lives, his name is Halo. He has the same name. And he becomes our ancestor. So at the very beginning, what we recognize is that there are family, there are grandparents. And so we're going to behave accordingly. Um, yeah, so that's like the, the 101. Why do we love land? Why does land matter? Well, because it gives us life and because it's who we come from. And the, the less we recognize that, actually, the less Hawaiian we are. Um, when we fail to recognize that, we we do a disservice to what it means to be Hawaiian. I think I saw a video recently um, of you talking about, I think you were at Mauna Kea talking about um, Aloha Aina and that whole idea. I wonder if you can speak to that. Yeah, for sure. So Aloha Aina is a word we hear a lot these days in Hawaii. Um, it literally means to love the land. And in the last, God, how many years? Since, eight, since 1897, one of the translations to Aloha Aina has been patriotism, Hawaiian patriotism, um, because this, this group, Kahui Aloha Aina, they translated their own name as the Hawaiian Patriotic League. And basically they collected signatures in, in 1897 opposing the annexation. And so that's like our first big written example of what it means to be an Aloha Aina. And Aloha Aina 
uh, protests imperialism and empire and American colonization. Um, but if you go back even further in Hawaiian stories, these, these stories tell a more expansive version of what Aloha means, that like intimate interpersonal relationship with land, but also with people. Um, Joseph Nabahi in 1895, he writes an article in the Hawaiian language in a newspaper called Kealoha um, and he defines Aloha as uh, as that magnetic pull between a person and their land and their desire to fight for true independence. But also he says that when you hold one Aloha close enough to another Aloha they're drawn fully together um, and that they recognize each other. So we learned from that that like our love for land actually forces us to take into account how we love each other and it changes how we're in relations with each other. So the more you see this is probably this is getting a little into the weeds, but I do research in um, Hawaiian intimacy and relationships. And so one of the things we see there is that the more you police the kinds of relationships that are um, allowed, right? Like heterosexual monogamous relationships, the more you police that, mm -hmm. um, that's a part of the same project that's trying to remove us from our land because it's changing the way we relate to each other. And then we forget how we historically relate to land. So they're doing these two things at the same time. Mm -hmm. And all of that is affecting our environmental and our interpersonal health. Yeah. Yep. And then I guess that kind of leads into some questions about, so what does the path to sovereignty look like? Um, and how do we, how do I, as a white person who loves Hawaii, like that's home to me, but I'm not native Hawaiian, like how how do we engage in a way that is helpful, that leads to sovereignty that... Um... Yeah, word. Okay, so <laughs> that's a huge question, right? Because there's yeah. so many ways. And when I was growing up, um, I, I think the like surface level conversation that most people get is that sovereignty is an issue of legality. Um, Hawaii was an internationally recognized nation state by the League of Nations, right? So, you know, the French, um, the British, and eventually even the United States, like, they're like, oh, we see you, you're a country. Um, and because of that, and because there was no actual treaty of annexation, they like created fake laws to make Hawaii a territory. Um, because of that, the argument is that Hawaii remains an illegally occupied nation under military occupation. So some people will tell you sovereignty is all about ending the occupation um, deoccupying Hawaii, demilitarizing Hawaii, and, and basically the people who remain taking up a place in this government infrastructure that we actually built in the kingdom, and that was taken from us. The argument is that like most of this political infrastructure in Hawaii is in fact Hawaiian kingdom infrastructure. And that's like an interesting path towards sovereignty. Um, right. I don't think it's the most interesting path towards sovereignty. And and important to note, a lot of people in Hawaii, because it's so contested, they think that even that path is about everyone who's not Hawaiian leaving. Like everyone gets kicked out. You're all deported. Right. Um, but it's important to note that with the kingdom, the kingdom was um, an eth ethnically diverse nation. So people who weren't Hawaiian, many people were citizens of the kingdom. So there would be a path for citizenship. You'd have to denounce being American, but I think a lot of people would be down with that right now anyway. So that, that's one path. Um, what's more interesting to me in terms of a path for sovereignty follows more closely with ideas around decolonization. 
right? So really opening up a space for us to be critical of the, the nature of the way power is operating in a traditional nation state. Right? Someone like me is less interested in having a Hawaiian kingdom or even like a Hawaiian version of the United States and more interested in us taking seriously how are we going to relate to each other? What do we think of as effective leadership? What are our values and how we relate to the land? What are the norms we have around development and land speculation? And this is a harder one to sell because it's more complicated and it's a bit more expansive. Um, and people don't know exactly how they fit into it, right? That's a, a question we get a lot from folks who, who love Hawaii and are completely well-intentioned, but don't know how to fit into that situation. And what I'll say about that is the, the first way we can all be more invested in this is, is in having more conversations where we destabilize the status quo, right? Where we, we don't talk about capitalism or tourism as, um, as natural or things that always have to exist in the way that they exist. We don't talk about patri patriarchy in the way as the idea that it's natural and that it always has to exist. And we actually start building systems of governance, small scale systems of governance in our own communities. So there are folks who are doing this on other islands where they basically just took back land that they don't own and they just started growing food on it. And they started feeding their community and running kind of engagement programs. So most people, these things are starting to pop up in different places. The best way to get involved is like to get involved in where you're at and like what's, what is the community already doing there? Um, and then as more people get involved, I think more, more folks will realize that sovereignty in Hawaii in a real meaningful way is better for 99.9% .9 of the population, right? There are a few people like the big five who are running all the big corporations and like these international hotel conglomerates who will be harmed by sovereignty, right? That's why it's dangerous. But most people, um, most people of color, for sure, most women, uh, all the queer people, all these folks are going to be bettered by, by sovereignty. Um, and we're all going to be a lot more healthy, I think. So, yeah, I guess the, the like short answer is um, get involved in your own small communities, which I know is hard because you're far away, but like that's the answer to everyone here. Like what's happening in Mauna Lua in like Koi Kai, right? What are the Hawaiians doing there? Right. Um, yeah. So something I've been thinking a lot about mm -hmm. is sort of this, you know, I know you're in a different field, but when I think about social work, there's like almost a cognitive dissonance as a white social worker in a field that is really white, that's guided by a lot of white, you know, um, our assignments are by white people. And mm -hmm. I think there's a conversation that needs to be had about creating space for BIPOC people to come in and to like, how do we make room? And so like, as a white person who's studying to become a social worker, it's hard to be like, okay, so like, but do like, where, how do I fit into this? And do I fit into this? And, um, and I guess I'm sort of thinking about the Mauna Kea, everything that was happening on Mauna Kea, a piece that I feel like I heard a lot was that if you're not native Hawaiian, you shouldn't just go, like you should, you should be invited and like, like be respectful of those communities. And so I, I guess the connections I'm trying to make is like, so how do, are there times when people have had good intentions hmm. that have been really harmful? Maybe yeah. White people specifically. <laughs> so um, 
I'm going to take it back to what we talked about a little earlier with this idea of Alohaina, right? Um, one of the things we learned from Alohaina is that Aina teaches us how to love each other and that our relationship to land is completely mediated through our relationships to each other. So one of the things I've been telling folks more recently um, when they ask, because a lot of people ask me, uh, how to engage? What's, what's the respectful way to engage? The, I think the best way now is realizing that if, if we want to have an ethical relationship to land, then we need to start with ethical relations with people. Mm -hmm. um, and to really start to develop those relations, relations with people who are on the ground. So that's one way, but that can also be incredibly taxing uh, for all parties. The other thing is that I, I think we've been more harmed than helped by cancel culture in all the ways. Um, I think it scares people away from engagement. I think it, it paralyzes folks who are good people who want to learn and want to grow. Um, and I don't want to pretend like that, that thing doesn't exist because it is like this real thing that um, impacts the way that people engage. But to me, the most important thing is not that people who come to support us, that they're perfect. Um, what's most important to me is that everyone who comes, including myself, is, is ready to be held accountable mm -hmm. um, and how we respond to being held accountable. And I wish I could say that everyone will hold folks accountable in a way that, um, that is just, but I can't say that, right? Like there's, there's all kinds of layers that go into this, but the best thing someone can do is is like come with their whole heart and their whole selves trying to develop real relationships with people before places because a part of the issue is that we're saying too many people are developing a relationship with our places without letting us mediate, mediate it right and we're getting cut out of that equation but if we can develop more relationships with each other to the point where if someone f's up i can say you know what you, you really messed up and I don't want to cancel you. Like, I want you to know you messed up and I want us to heal from this so that we can move forward. Um, so that's like, that's the way. And I did hear people saying like, if you're not Hawaiian, you shouldn't be going to the Mauna. And I think that's, I think that's unfortunate because yes, on the one hand, I really just wanted to be there with all my people, mm -hmm. but there were so many great allies who showed up and like did really good work. And I think more would have showed up if, if they felt like we wouldn't just cancel them for doing so. Mm -hmm. um, so a, the, the truth is being an ally is is important, but also like it takes courage. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. In, in all the ways you have to like, it takes courage amongst you and fellow white allies to stand up when people are saying effed up shit stuff. It takes right. courage to engage in a space out where you aren't in the center. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm going back to that, um, knowing someone. So if we're talking about Mauna Kea, like knowing someone who's there and not just going. And and um, I just think about the trap of it becoming like a tourist destination, like, oh, there's all this cool stuff. And I, you know, the tourism volunteering, you know, when people like go. Yeah, 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 yeah. When they go hoofing and stuff. They go right. save the world by farming in someone else's land when they weren't invited. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. No, and, and and here's the thing is like invitation is important and mm -hmm. consent to enter is important. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we don't want to burden, you know, a lot of people have the same Hawaiian friend, right? We don't want to burden that one Hawaiian friend to have to issue out all those invitations. Right. But I think there's a way to think 
ethically about invitation and consent mm -hmm. um, without needing like the permission slip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's scary. Like I get that. That's scary. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I didn't go to, I didn't go to standing rock because I didn't think it was my place. Right. Um, even though they were calling people to come, I was like, that's not my land. Um, one of the other pieces that I've been thinking a lot about is like this idea of land stewardship as um, a piece of environmental justice. And in terms of sort of a path towards so sovereignty, but also in terms of literally saving the planet, because a lot of indigenous ways of caring for the land are much more sustainable. Um, and I guess I'm thinking about what you talked about this a little bit, but I, what that could look like, I think specifically on Oahu where it's, you know, there's a huge tourism industry. There's a lot, like not a ton of land left. Like how, what does that look like to kind of reclaim that space? Yeah. So I, I think it's, it's good to start with, with the understanding that uh, we're never going to get out of this with capitalism, right? Capitalism always, was never about sustainability. In fact, it was always about the opposite, maximizing profits by exploiting land and labor um, to the most expansive degree, right? Like the, the more you exploited, the better you were doing in capitalism. Um, one of the problems in Hawaii is that we're often faced with this question. Um, if not tourism, we have nothing, right? If not tourism, then what? And, and it is, you're right, like, it is a huge issue on Oahu because there is there is much less undeveloped space on Oahu. Um, I am comforted by the fact, and this doesn't completely answer your question yet, but I'm comforted by the fact that our islands fed almost a million people before uh, foreigners arrived without any outside exports. So we yeah. know that the land, even when it wasn't, and we weren't fully utilizing all the land. We didn't, not every single inch of land was producing food, but we know that we have created systems that can produce enough food to feed a million people, which is a bit less than what we have now, but not that much less. Right. Um, and I'm not saying we should stop the ships completely. What I know about land is that even under the harshest conditions, if you invest in, in land, not in money, but like invest time in land, that it does heal. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we're asking is for us to stop developing land that doesn't need to be developed for any reasons, right? Some people, we have a huge affordable housing issue in Hawaii, but the issue is not a shortage of housing, right? We don't need more people to come and say, I'm gonna build more affordable housing. We've got plenty of housing, just nobody can afford to be in it because there's too many military folks and there's too many empty hotel rooms and too many empty um, Airbnbs. Yep. What we're saying is no more building. Let's grow food in the land that is already ready to grow food. And when I say food, I don't mean GMO corn. I mean, let's grow food we can eat. Um, right. And let's utilize the, the other islands that have that kind of space. Hawaii Island can feed so many people if we were just putting farmers on the land. Mm -hmm. And let's invest in a long-term intergenerational commitment to reclaiming some of these places that have already been developed. Tear down the buildings that we don't need invest in the soil um so that in a couple generations you know i mean the dream would be waikiki has fish ponds again instead of hotels um but those are the kinds of things that people say it's impossible because you can't do it in 10 years 
Right. But but if we're really talking about sustainability, why wouldn't we invest in something that would last us a couple thousands of years if we gave it a few hundred years of rest? Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. So I don't know. That's long term. I don't do planning though. I'm not a planner. <laughs> I'm a literature scholar. So yeah. these are all just big hyperbolic ideas. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's I mean it's all good. I am curious about um you had mentioned some of the intersectionality of these pieces and I know a lot of what's happened it disproportionately affects like you said like women and LGBTQ people and I think it's important to emphasize I think it's good you brought back this point it's important to emphasize that you know that old adage that we're all in this together or we're all in the same boat like that's all bs mm-hmm. um I saw I saw a meme the other day that said um we're all in the same ocean, but we're not all in the same boat. And I'm not even sure I agree with that, but that's closer to the truth. Yeah. Um, because, because we can see issues like climate change affecting people in the Pacific at astronomical rates, right? Like, I mean, they've been seeing climate change um, swallowing up their homes for years now, while folks in places like California, I mean, there's there's drought and fire, but there's, there's still enough co- cognitive dissonance for people to pretend that climate change isn't existing there. Um, so we need to really pay attention to how one by having more ethical relationships with each other we can see the impacts of these things beyond our own personal experience and that's going to be really important especially because most of the people who are in charge aren't experiencing these things at the levels that most folks throughout the world are Mm -hmm. um the other the other part of this i think is that Indigenous feminism teaches us that we don't just need to care about women and queer people and children because it's moral. We need to account for these issues because accounting for women, children, and queer people actually relates more closely to the way Indigenous people govern. So if we're actually talking about decolonization, it goes through a process of decolonizing the way we see our interpersonal relationships. So I think that's another important part that we need to remind people, we're not just saying to do this because it's the moral just thing to do. We're saying to do it this way because this is actually how we affect meaningful change rather than just like regime change. And so much that we learn from intersectionality and, and black feminist thought and indigenous feminism is that it will not be enough for us to just put more people who look and think like us into positions of power because these positions and systems of power are the problem. It's not just who's sitting in those chairs. And so we're really calling for a complete unearthing and turning over of these kinds of things, which is why um, I, I think that makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. But I also think that this particular moment where we're fighting this neo-fascism is, is making people more aware of some of these pretty old arguments that folks in my communities have been making for a while that 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 most people in the United States couldn't even see as legitimate because we had this this whole like uh, neoliberal neocolonial good facade of America under Obama um, so it means we're in a really particularly important moment because people are paying attention and they're intimately affected yeah definitely Um, It makes me think of the idea of like caring for land or like caring for each other is a very like female idea. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be willing to hold those ideas as important and 
in order to to get there. And so you have to yeah overthrow the the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah you have completely destabilized what it means to be a man and a woman. Right. Um, and and it's important we keep like yelling that at people because every social movement in the United States since the inception of the United States has said let us deal with this one thing first and then we'll deal with this woman issue, then we'll deal with this queer issue, right? From everything from civil rights, the Native American movement to Hawaiian sovereignty has said those things. And so we're basically saying like, you don't get it. Mm -hmm. This is the issue. Yes, exactly. Yeah. One thing that might be good to, I think we talked about this in the email, but it'd be good to, to say out loud is I like, I like the question when people are asking me like how to get involved because it signals to me that there's at least a bit of an understanding that it's the stuff outside of our office that's going to make a difference, that's going to really push the needle, right? So as someone who I've had quite a bit of therapy throughout my life and in the last couple of years, like some really good therapy because I found a blind therapist, mm-hmm. ultimately like that's something I needed to be well, but less than needing her to like show me how to be well in the shitty system what I really need is for people myself included to go fix the shitty system right so like young black people uh young black folks in the United States don't just need a therapist to help them work through all this PTSD and grieving they need their therapist to be out in the streets calling for the abolition of the police and prisons right um they need we need the violence to stop we need to stop needing um and so and I've met quite a few people who who are in that space and whatever fields they're in, like trying to figure out how do we how do we stop actually stop the bleeding and stop just dealing with symptoms mm-hmm. of this overall abuse. Yes. Um, and like I'm comforted by the fact that there's so many of us who are trying to do that in so many different places. Yeah. Yeah. It really yeah. um it reminds me of like this whole conversation about how important self-care is, but it's like self-care is like a a not, it's not even a band-aid. It's yeah. just like this pretend thing to it's like a tea. Yes. You can just act like the world is not on fire. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm, you know, I'm I'm pretty good at self-care, but I can't like self-care my way out of the fact that, you know, most Hawaiians are homeless. Not most Hawaiians, but most homeless people in Hawaii are Hawaiians. Yeah. Um yeah, so the more that we can realize that all that other work is actually our work, right? And not just silo ourselves and say, no, this is how I contribute. Um, no, this is your job. Everything outside of that is how you contribute. Um, right. Yeah, that's what it's going to take. In this episode, Dr. Osorio spoke about a few different paths to sovereignty, including deoccupying, demilitarizing, decolonization, and the deconstruction of the way we prioritize the things that hold importance to us. She highlighted the intersectionality of sovereignty, feminism, LGBTQ rights, and environmental justice, and that in order to affect change, we must not only develop an understanding of these intersections, but we need to nurture our relationships with each other. As social workers, we have a responsibility to disrupt the status quo, but we must do so in a way that honors and amplifies the voices of those we seek to support. And to do this, it's critical to put in the work of establishing meaningful relationships. I want to thank Dr. Osorio again for joining me in this conversation. And to the listeners out there, I hope you'll join me next time here on Land Talk.